Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I actually, I went out last week, and I bought checks. I had to get checks from the bank, even though I only send, like, two different checks, and I had to get, like, 100 checks. But it made me think, like, years ago, I used to sit there and buy those checks before you could pay online. Buy those fancy checks. And you know what I'm talking about. They might have had a... Uh, a spiritual saying on them, or I got ones with tropical fish, or they beat cartoons on them. And I could never figure out now, looking back at it, why the hell I was buying checks to look nice. Those people are taking my money. So basically, I should buy checks that say, you know, screw off or stop calling me. But I bought those checks, and so this time I went and I bought the most plain checks, and I wish I could have got a middle finger stuck on them. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman, which this is funny. I have known this gentleman. Uh, he started booking me doing comedy in, I believe, 1988. And till today, I thought his last name was spelled with two T's. But when I looked up Skype, it's spelled with one T. And I feel like a moron, but my guest is Andy Scarpati. How you doing, Andy? Greetings, Cooper, to you and all the folks listening. Yeah, you know what? Phonetically, there should be two T's, but... Apparently, when one of my relatives came across the ocean, somebody forgot one of the T's. No one complained. Well, it's just funny because I know there was a football player named Andy Scarpati, and he used to. Nah, his, there was Joe Scarpati, Joe, played for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he had two T's. He, was, he, he actually tied. He actually was tied for the league in uh, interceptions one year. That was back in the '60s. And that's late '60s. And, uh, and every, because our name was spelled identically, people would say, "Hey, is that?" Is that, are you related to him? I go, yeah, of course, it's my uncle. I was, was in the locker room last weekend. It was all bullshit. But uh, he is supposed to be a distant relative of ours. I mean, my cousin said, yeah, yeah, he's like one of our fifth cousins. So I mean, I, don't know, I never met him, but I heard he was really a great guy. Well, now, I got to ask you, you know, you've, you've been in the comedy business for years. When you were a kid, did you want to be a, a comic or what yes. did you want to do? I mean, how does happen? Absolutely. When I was... How about how about yourself? Are you 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 the same way when you're younger? I watched stand up, yeah. I watched the different TV shows, but I sort of wanted to be a sports announcer when I was younger. But then I gravitated towards comedy. But for you, now you grew up in in South South Jersey, I think, or where'd you grow up? Oh uh, no, I, I'm suburban Philadelphia. I grew up in Bucks County, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I lived in Langhorne, uh, Levittown, and all that. But no, when I was younger, like I think a lot of comedians, uh, you know, I'm a bit older. I'm 65 now, so. I grew up in the, I was a child of the 60s, not a child of the 70s or 80s. And in the 60s, you know, Ed Sullivan, and my, my mom was a big fan of the comedians. We used to watch Alan King and, you know, comedians like that you'd see on TV, you know, Milton Burrow, whatever. And, my, and everybody in our family liked comedians. So when I was a little kid, I'd watch them on TV and I'd go, wow, I'd like to do that. But in my mind, I thought, oh, I could never do that because how the hell am I going to remember? How do they think that stuff up? I just... Or like out of high school and I was in college, uh, I started looking at it a little differently. Like, you know, okay, I could try it. Why not? You know, so I just I just tried it. I just started doing it, and uh, that was in the seventies. I was a teacher at the time. Now, where so did you, then I just, where did you do I'm it sorry. at? Where did you do it at back then? Because it's uh, not, it's back not... then, um, the first place I went was to the Improvisation in New York, and at the time, you know, the, on the Carson show, when he'd have comedians on, they would always mention. They were at the Improvisation, which was on the ninth, the corner of 9th and 44th or something. Like the original Improvisation, Bud Friedman's Improv, was in New York City. 
so uh, I went up there. I, and when I was in line, who were some of the comedians that was in line with that day? I remember Abby Stein. I don't know if you remember her or not. Um, there were a lot of comedians in line. You had to get there at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, wait in line until 8 o'clock at night to pick a number. <laughs> no, I'm serious. And uh, when I was waiting, when I was waiting, I was, there was literally 12 o'clock, there was a line of people on the sidewalk, and we waited there for eight hours. And then you would pick, and, they, and, they, and it was a little, uh, it was like a little coffee can, and the coffee can had uh, numbers in them on little round pellets, and it was a number. And the number you picked was the, when you went on. So the first number I picked was like 19, and I I slipped and dropped it because I'm going to go on that late. And then I picked again, and I got seven. That was the first time I went on. It was in uh, you know New York City, and I didn't you know I didn't do well. I mean I I was horrible. <laughs> I I taped the thing, so I got a chance to listen to it again, and I was horrible. But you know I wasn't dismayed by that. I figured well let me just keep trying it. And uh, you know I was just a big just a big fan of comedy. I'm assuming you were too, as you you know got older and decided you wanted to try stand up. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, it's something that, you know, I, the same way, Carson and stuff like that and, and the albums, you know, but for me, it was, you know, it was easier for me to get into comedy because by the time I got into comedy, you know, the comedy factory outlook and the comedy works were places we could go for open mics. And then you, right. were, you were having, you had a ton of clubs, which I want to talk about a little bit later, but how did you transition? Like when you're going to a comic in New York, when did you sit there and start transitioning to the Philadelphia area and were you involved in that comic you know like the original jailhouse scene or all those those comedy clubs to to an extent to an extent uh so what happened was uh, uh well anyway I started I started just you know um going to New York and then I found out that there was a place in Philly did you know the very first comedy club in Philly was on third and chestnut it was called grandma minnie's Okay. So we're going way back now. Grandma Minnie's was the first comedy club in Philly. This was before any of them. And this was back in the 70s. And it was owned by a guy named Neil Schwartz. And so I went to open stage night there. On, it was a Wednesday night. And actually a comedian in New York told me about it when I was driving to New York. Because where are you from? I said, Philly. He goes, there's, there's a club in Philly now. Because there is where. So I didn't even know about it. But, so I started going there on Wednesday nights. So who do I meet there on Wednesday nights? Craig Shoemaker. Rich Hall, Joe Bolster, they were the three names that I remember there that were every Wednesday night they'd be there. And, I, and Rich Hall, he was in Philly, living in Philly at the time. Do you remember Rich Hall? Yeah, of course. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so I started, you know, get, you know getting, learning a couple things here and there. So eventually at some point I was teaching and then I decided that um, I did a couple little things for the local college. Uh, they had me open up for like a band. I mean, I was, I was an okay comic. I got some laughs. I did some goofy shit. You know, I used to smack myself in the head and throw myself on the on the stage floor. I mean, really crazy stuff. But you know, it got laughs because it was, you know, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't highbrow comedy by any means. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, what happened was, I decided that I wanted to try my own show. So uh, the. The Bucks County Community College let me use a room because I opened up for a band there. I got a couple laughs, and I said to the guy, I go, well, hey, look, let me do a night of comedy here. Because at that time, I had no Joe Bolster. I had run into Mike Egan because there were some other open stage nights in and around Philly that started popping up at various places. So I said, that's it. So I put on a show. It was The first show I ever put on was May 11th of 1979. 
there was a Bucks County Community College, and uh, I had Mike Egan who made fifty-five bucks. Joe Bolster made fifty-five bucks, <laughs> and I made fifty-five bucks. And I was a teacher at the time, and literally, I would go to the campus in the morning. I I print flyers up that the uh, school that I worked for paid for, and I would hand out flyers. I get I get I go to school at like seven o'clock in the morning. Students come, I hand a fly- then I drive and teach the school. After school, I go back to the school. I'd hand out flyers. I'd walk into classrooms that were empty. I wrote on the blackboards, comedy show, and the date and all that kind of stuff. And I'd talk to the, the, the radio station of the school, and there was a, a video place. So I did everything I possibly could to promote it, and it ended up being a great night. Ended up, the room was full. Everybody was laughing. And the first time I did that, Steve, it was just, it was like my, uh, I was just, thrilled, excited beyond belief. And I'm telling you that when that show was over, I literally could not leave the school. Like the show was over, everybody left, I was still in the room, I'm by myself in the room now, I'm going, oh my gosh, this was just, it was just so much fun, it was so amazing, I just had such a good time. And then I I couldn't leave this, like 11 o'clock at night now, and there were still some people at the school. But I remember driving home from that going, oh, my God, that was so much fun. I have to do it again. So then I started looking for places to maybe set up shows here and there. And uh, I set up a a show at the college. They let me use a room. I did uh, a show every Friday night. Uh, I had a lot of comedians from New York come down. I mean, the budget was, Bob Nelson came down, like, I don't know, 50 bucks from New York in 1979. So I'm I'm teaching school at the time. And uh, and at, at the time, in Philly was the jailhouse, which was run by Clay Erie. And so Jay, they're running the jailhouse, and they found out about me. You know, I, I went down there and did some spots for them. And then they came up one Friday night and saw what was going on. And they were kind of shocked, I think, that they were in Bucks County at a college and the room was full of people. So that's when they made the move over to um, uh, Tyune's place on 2nd and Chestnut, the Middle East. Right. Okay, so when they when they did that, uh, they asked me if I could run the jailhouse for them because they needed somebody that knew how to run a show. So I literally ran the jailhouse for them, which we did two shows on a Saturday night there. And, um, you know, I got some experience doing that. And then eventually I decided to open up my own spot. And then I opened up a place in Wilmington. I found a, you know, it's a production company. I mean, that's what Clay Erie did. That's what we did back in those days. And that simply means you go into a place, you tell the owner, I want to use the room. You don't have to pay me. I'll work for the door. And the owner goes, what do I have to do? Nothing. You sell your food and drinks. I'll promote it. I'll buy my own stage. I'll buy my own sound system. I'll even buy the furniture for the room. I'll do everything myself. And that's what I did. And you know what? Back in those days when I started, uh, it had never been done before, especially in this part of the world. It was like a new thing. And when I opened up clubs, you put one ad, you put one ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer, people would flock to the place. The place that, and you know what? There were a lot of comedians, and a lot of them weren't too good. But because we kept expanding, at one time I had 10, 10 places that we did comedy shows on weekends. 10 places. Oh. Every stretch. Let me, let me, let me uh, interrupt Virginia, you real Philly, quick. Or me... Washington, King of Prussia, Harrisburg, Cherry Hill, Mount Laurel, um... Allentown, uh, Harrisburg, uh, I mean, you, oh. you name it, we were, we were doing shows there everywhere, and I had a, a 
staff of people helping me. It was, well, I it got, was just, it was an amazing time. It was I got just a, an amazing time. And in those years when I first started, great comedians. I mean, I ended up getting great comedians. Jay Leno worked for us back then, Di Myrera. As time progressed, uh, we had uh, Kevin James, um, Brian Regan. Who else? Well, you, you know, uh, put, it, I'm sorry. what's amazing about it is, and it's so funny, I was thinking about this earlier today, is I remember I was working out at the outlet at, on the staff, and I was working at the works doing the stage time, and Grover Silcox had asked me, he, you called me, and you said, Grover Silcox, you didn't know me. Everyone wanted to work for Scarpati. We were new. And getting an MC gig yeah. with you meant, hey, you know what? It's it's 15 minutes each weekend, and you're getting paid at least 50 bucks a set, or maybe 75 But I remember Grover called me. You called me, because Grover had met me at the Comedy Factory outlet. And I did a gig with him when you booked Champs up in State College. And uh-huh. we drove up there, and then... The next day or whatever, I called you and I just wanted to say thank you for the spot. And you told me Grover gave me a good recommendation. And uh-huh. you said, I want you to work for me. And this is a, how many clubs you had. You sat there and, I mean, I had bookings at Comedy Works, Comedy Factory, Outlet, and Mitchell's, and maybe like one or two Solari gigs. But you yeah. filled up. <laughs> I still remember this. You gave me 35 weekends on one phone call. And I was like, holy crap, because it was like, and I was from Cherry Hill. And then when I played the Hyatt, the Carrier Post wrote me up, and it was just yeah. amazing, because that's the thing. Your clubs, like the furthest one besides Champs, which was a one-nighter, which back then paid the opener good, eh, but the furthest one you had was the Lifties, which was a Saturday night, but you paid us more. And and that's the funny thing is, you, you had the clubs, and for young comics... It was amazing because all of a sudden, our careers went from being an open micer to someone who, I'm sorry, no, unless you suck, and even if you suck, if you do, if you get 35 weekends of work in front of crowds, which they weren't the one-nighters we do, you became good. And it's amazing to me that you had that vision to open all these clubs, and they were successful. They lasted, you know what, some of them lasted for quite some time, but I mean, as you can see as time goes on, I mean, the model that I used, the business model, was great for that era, you know, look, let's work for the door, and it was a new, it was like the new shiny thing on the, on the block, everybody wanted to go to a comedy show, everybody, every weekend people came, but you know, as time goes on and things have changed, um, that model doesn't work quite as well nowadays, you know, because it just takes so much energy, effort, and advertising and money to get people to come in. You know, now we do a lot of funny fundraiser stuff, and that's just, you know, you, make, you only make $10 a head on those people. And, but without them, without them, there, were, there wouldn't be enough of a crowd for a Friday night in the, where my rooms are, you know, the suburbs in northeast Philly. It's not, they're not great. It, it's not like, we do, we do okay on Saturdays, you know, Saturn. But... Friday nights, if we don't have the funny fundraiser business, it's really tough to get people through the door. Well, no. You know, but yeah, back in those days, it was a lot of fun. And you know, you made a good point because a lot of comedians that actually weren't really very talented, you know, still got booked because we needed bodies. Yeah. We needed warm bodies on that stage. So a lot of guys, you know, in those days, you know, you'd have like pretty much a week MC usually and an okay middle act and, you know, pretty much a decent last act you know those type of shows now uh they're not really strong enough 
they're not strong enough to really make people happy. I mean, people come in, you know, they want to pay their hard-earned money. you got to make them laugh. I mean, a lot of the shows I'm booking now, you know, are much, much stronger than the shows we did in those days, simply by virtue of, fortunately for us, the Philly area is blessed with tons of great comics, as you well know. I mean, there's just great comics in this region like, you know, Callahan, O'Donnell, Ramon Harris, Jay Black, Big Daddy Graham still does comedy, Sudsy, uh, I don't know if you know, Simply D, Mike Egan. These guys are all in the air, Marsdale. And there's a bunch of great women. Helene Angley, I don't know if you know her, she's hilarious. Dina Blizzard, once in a while, still does stand-up for us, even though she does her one-woman show, Mary Frances Connolly. There's this woman named Missy Grankowitz, you've probably never seen. She lives in Delaware, and I'm telling you now, the woman potentially could be a big star. She is one of the funniest funniest comedians I've ever worked with, and she's and she's local. I mean, I just think hopefully it's a matter of time that somehow she could break out. I mean, she's just, she the woman makes me laugh so hard, and I've seen her, you know, I'm blessed in comedy. I don't know if you're like me when it comes to this, but to me, certain comedians are literally like listening to my favorite song. You know how certain songs you love, you can listen to over and over? Well, that's how I am with certain comics. I could watch them over and over and over and still just love it and still laugh. And, 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 and Missy Grankowitz is definitely one of those, uh, one of those comedians, now, as is a lot of the guys that work for us. So now, you know, we're blessed in this area to have all the talent like that. I mean, how about yourself? Have you done any stand-up lately? Are you still doing that? I occasionally do it. You know, I come out. I've, I've done I, – my friend Joe Matteris headlined at Helium, and I, oh, I emceed for him. And, oh, good. And, good. Uh, didn't he need to do a taping on that? Yeah, he, he taped his third special, and you know, did, I think, he, did it air any place? Now people do specials and they get investors, and I don't even know where it pops up. It's changed so much. That's what I, I want to ask you about, which you'll crack up. Back in the day, you know, because now every comic has tons and tons of merch, but back in the day. The only comic that had merch was Big Daddy Graham, and he would sell albums. Isn't it amazing how much the business has changed that way? Like, for your clubs, I always remember your clubs ran like clockwork. If the show was supposed Thank to start you. at 8, it started at 8. And you were the MC, and when you were going up, and you were still newer, and you were nervous, and you would hear the curly shuffle, and that was the song. That was the comedy <laughs> cabaret song. You'd hear the curly shuffle, and people, if you don't know, it was a song. It was huge. In the late '80s, early '90s, it was called yeah. the Curly Shuffle. And we then, still, we still use it. I know. I, I did. I did when you had the Marlton Club because when I was coming I back to see my girlfriend, it. I was like, "Wait a second, Because Tony Conaway was managing it, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, right." I'm like, "I'm like the Curly." Wait a second, and I'm thinking these young kids probably have no idea what that song no is. No idea. They have no idea. I know. But they have when, no idea. But, shows, but that's okay. That's but, okay. But with your shows, because uh, a lot of times it'd be two shows in a night, there wasn't t- no one had merch to sell except Big Daddy Graham, and when you got done, yeah. you had to turn the room over because the bottom line is. You know, you you don't want the the late show to start too late, but it's like, you know, how would you decide if you would go with one show or three shows? Did you give it a, a, a chance to let it see if it worked, or did you just have an idea where? Oh yeah, here's here's what we did. I mean, in in the late '80s, early '90s, we did two shows on Friday, and in Northeast Philly, we did three shows on Saturday. We did that for a while, and then well, here's what happened: the late show Friday. Even though I was getting, you know, maybe 75 people for it, they were usually drunk. And I said, fuck it. I don't want to make money with a show where there's drunks yelling out and shit. So I just stopped. 
And the same with the late show on Saturday. We did a third show on Saturday. I think it started at like 11 o'clock or something like that, which, you know, isn't really late for people in their 20s or 30s. And But, you know, the thing is, a lot of them had been drinking already. And consequently, you know, it just, it, to me, it affected the show to a point like, I don't want to make a couple hundred bucks on a show like this where it's just drunk people. It, it To me, it wasn't worth it, and I just said I'm not going to do it. You know, now if I was a, a, a whore and just wanted to make money, then I would just do it. But I wasn't like that. Now, when you were doing still it, not. when you were doing the comedy, I mean, why do you think at the time comedy was so big? Because, I mean, you had rooms in Cherry It was new. Number, it it was, was the new thing on the block. Now, remember, when I started my first place in 1980, there were no comedy clubs then. It was just the comedy works that had just started. And then my place. And then that's when I started saying, well, look, if it works in Wilmington, I'm going to start opening up other places. And then I opened up a club in Trenton, and I was in Cherry Hill, and then, and then I just kept boom, 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 boom. Uh, the, when I opened up the place, in, uh, well, I was in Sportsers, the King of Prussia. Todd Glass is the one that actually hooked me up there. Before I was, I was initially in like a George Washington Motor Lodge. But the thing is, here's my point, is that these places, because they were so new, that's why it was so everybody, everybody came. So right now, there is no new thing. Like, if, if a new thing came up right now, I don't know what the new thing would be, and it was in a nightclub, uh, people would want to go to it because it was new. I don't know what it would be. If somebody came up with a new thing that could get people to come out, uh, it, would be, it would be big for a while, and then and, 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 and just settle down. Because, let's face it, everybody that goes to the comedy club, you know, they're just there because their friends wanted to go, and they, you know, they want to spend the money, or they don't think the comedians are that funny. I mean, you and I both know, if you watch some of these comedians on YouTube, it's a shitty set, but you see them in person, they're funny. Right. Now, I've had, I've had a customer say to me, well, no, I saw that guy on YouTube, he's not funny. And I have to literally say, no, 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 no. Don't worry about YouTube. No, I guarantee you, when you see them live, that is a bad taping. They're way better than that. You've got to see them live. You know, so, I mean, I've had to say that sometimes, because people put, they put their comedy on YouTube, and, it, and it's bad. I, I mean... I don't think it's smart, but some of them do. Now, now, when you when your clubs were booming, you know, and like anything, you're you have a creative mind. You're an entrepreneur. I mean, you wouldn't have opened all these clubs if you weren't an entrepreneur. It's an entrepreneurial uh, streak in you. And as and any entrepreneur thinks it's going to last forever. As the clubs, you're you're bringing in all this money, and their clubs. <laughs> you have ten clubs now. When do you start seeing it to dip a little? And what do you do? Do you start to panic, or do you sit there and go, "I got it"? I mean, because you know, it, it's it's no, a scary thought. Because here's what happened. No, here's what happened to me personally is that, yeah, you know, when you're doing it and you're having it, and you know, you could do the math, all right? If I had ten rooms, I was making money. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I had ten rooms. I was making money with 10 rooms in the 80s and 90s. It was just unbelievable. By, by the mid-90s, you know, you could see the trend starting to go down by the mid-90s. And you were losing rooms. And then eventually, I just had six solid rooms. You know, then it was five solid rooms. And then it was four. And you could see that you just weren't getting the people anymore. It was just, it was, it was just lower, lower, and lower, and lower. And so then you just realize, okay, well, you just have to tighten it up. You have to spend less money. You have to promote less. You have to cut here and there. You have to figure out ways of making things work better. Like uh, there was a time when things started going down. I literally had to cut the budgets. Like, you know, comedians were making, say, 300 bucks a show. Uh, okay, guess what? 
Now the budgets have been cut. You're going to make 200. The rental acts are only going to make 100. Things got things just got cut. But you know, for myself personally, it got to the point where it did affect me emotionally, where I literally become depressed, especially on the summers where nobody was coming in, right. because you know psychologically you're so tied to it. You know, like our egos are so tied to the results of it. And it was, it's a good lesson that look, you can't you can't let your ego be tied to the results of this kind of stuff because it would drive you insane. <laughs> so you have to step back and. It's a good lesson. It's a good lesson. I mean, in my mind now, I know what, what to expect when the summers come. But, I mean, it, my my specific situation is so much different. I basically have, I'm going to say, one and a half rooms now, or one and three-quarter rooms. I have a nice club in Doylestown. Northeast Philly does okay some nights, and some nights it doesn't do very well. And then South Jersey, where we were doing great, and that little room in Marlton, the restaurant went out of business. And so now to find another venue that's going to match up perfectly to what my needs are, it just didn't work. I mean, I had some things offered to me that were just, it wouldn't work for comedy. The room wasn't right. It just, you know, there's a big post here and it's too small. I mean, or the, or the people go, yeah, you can use this room, but you got to pay me. I go, no, 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 I'm going to bring food and beverage in. No, no, yeah, you bring food and beverage and you pay me 500 bucks each night for the room. So. You and I both know that mathematics doesn't work when you just work with the door on that. Oh yeah. So, now, now you don't room, um, you don't room surprise. But yeah, to answer your question, I did I did get depressed, but you know I did start uh, another career purely by accident. Uh, I got into the hypnotherapy stuff purely, totally, and completely by accident. Uh, in the in in, in 1994, um, you know I don't know if you knew this or not, but you know I was doing stand up comedy. I was doing acting. Like, I did uh, local commercials. I was in, like, a half dozen local commercials in Philly. I did industrial films. Uh, I did a thing on uh, America's Most Wanted, playing a cop. You know, I did a bunch of different things. And I thought to myself, gee, I wonder what I could do with the acting thing. So I decided to move to New York City. And this was in, in 1994. All right, so I moved to New York City in 1994. I had the finances to do it, Okay because I had all these clubs, I was making a lot of money, I said, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to see what it's going to be like to go to acting school. And try. So I went to acting school, uh, the Lee Strasberg, the Method Acting School. And I lived in New York, and I was in New York. I'd go to New York on Sunday nights, and I'd come back home Thursday nights. And I had an apartment in New York, and I studied acting. And while I was there, after a year and a half of being there, I'm like, you know what, this acting thing... For me to make it in acting, I just, I'm not going to have the commitment. I'm not going to be able to do it. It's going to take, you know, I, I had two kids at the time. I was divorced. So, I mean, I had stuff I had to do every weekend. I had to come and be with my kids. And it, it, look, it's, it's impossible. But I took a self-hypnosis class while I was there. And I actually went to a hypnotherapist when I was there just to do some work on myself. And I found it very effective. And then I took this class. And this class led to something, I don't know if anything like this ever happened to you in your life, where, like right now, you're hosting these shows. I don't know if you ever thought you'd be doing that or not, but what I'm telling you, and anybody listening, sometimes in life, you do not expect something to happen at all, that you end up falling totally in love with, and with me, it was hypnotherapy. So this is what happened. It's kind of an interesting story in that I took this class, I enjoyed it, it was self-hypnosis class, I only took it. Just to learn about self-hypnosis, I was not interested at all in being a hypnotherapist. It was the furthest thing from my mind. 
But the guy teaching the class said, hey, guess what? We are having a, a, this next weekend, I am teaching a basic certification course for hypnotherapy. And you'd be a hypnotherapist after this weekend course. It's Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. So I'm like, well, I don't want to be a hypnotherapist, but I'm just curious. I want to learn. So I had the time. I had the money. So it was in New York City. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up and take it. So I signed up. I took the course. After the course, the guy hands me the certificate. You're a basic hypnotherapist. I go, ha, I'm never going to use this. So then I decided to move out of New York. I was running out of money. I came back here to the Philly area. And I said, I'm just going to stay in Philly, and I'm just going to, you know, do my acting and do stand-up comedy, and uh, that's going to be it. Well, um, this comedian named Ken Bolden, I don't know if you remember Ken Bolden or not. Sounds familiar. He he was a stage hypnotist that Comedy Cabaret used to hire. We hired him. He did some stage hypnosis shows for us. So one of the guys in my office told him I became a basic hypnotherapist. So listen to this. So he says, Bolden calls me on the phone. He goes, hey, Andy, how you doing? He goes, I understand you got your basic certification. I said, oh, yeah. Because you want to come down to my office? He had an office in Wilmington, Delaware, in a chiropractor's office. A little tiny office that we did. We had hypnosis clients. He goes, do you want to come down here? And I go, what for? He goes, no, you could sit in and, and see what it's like. I go, why would I want to do that? He goes, because it's really interesting what happens. It's fascinating what happens with these people in hypnosis. I go, all right, I'm curious. So I go down there, just curious. I go down. He introduces me as a hypnotherapist from Philly. So I'm sitting there next to him. Clients are coming in. After the third client, he leans over and he goes, do you want to take the next one? And I'm thinking, holy shit, I didn't think of that. <laughs> uh, well, okay. You know, okay, sure. You know, I didn't want him to think that, you know, I was, uh, okay. So this guy came in the office. It was a self-esteem issue. So I swear to God, this is what happened. And you might have times in your life where something like this happened to you. So I start talking to this guy, and I do a session with him. You know, this guy, Bolden, he, he has a doctorate in hypnosis at this point. So he's just sitting watching everything I'm doing. So I do a session with this guy, and here's the cool thing. When I started working with him, it was like words were flowing out of my mouth. It was like I didn't really have to do a lot of conscious thought with it, as strange as that may sound. Session's over. I helped the guy. He felt better. He left. And this guy, Dr. Bolden, is like, oh, my God, Andy, you're a natural at this. No, seriously, man, you're a natural. He goes, can you do me a favor? I need somebody to fill in for me one day a week. Can you fill in for me, like, on Wednesdays? And I said, uh, um, yeah, okay, because I wanted to see what it was like. So I filled in for him on Wednesdays. Now, I swear to God, this happened. Second Wednesday, I'm there. The second Wednesday, I'm there. A woman comes in that had lower back pain. So she has lower back pain. Now, remember, I had this weekend course. So wait to hear this. I didn't know what. I didn't know what to do with this woman. <laughs> so I had to say, excuse me. I went down. Fortunately, I got Ken Bolden on the phone. I go, Ken, uh, you know, she has pain. I, 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 I never anything with pain. I had the weekend course. They don't talk about pain. He goes, okay, here's what you do. He goes, regress her back to a time in her life when she didn't have pain, anchor that, and project it forward. Okay, I can do that. So I did this with this woman, and I swear to God, this is what happens. The session's over. The woman stands up. Well, first of all, the woman said to me, I went to my uh, orthopedic doctor, and he x-rayed my back, 
And he said he can't find anything, go to a hypnotist. So that's why she's sitting there. So I do the session with her. The session's over. She stands up and she grabs her back and she goes, oh my gosh, the pain is gone. I'm like, in myself, I'm going, holy shit, the pain's gone. <laughs> I can't believe it. But I didn't show that. Like, on the outside, I'm going, you know, of course it's gone. But on the inside, I'm going, holy shit, the pain is gone. You are healed. You know what I mean? So... That was it. I mean, after that happened, I'm driving home from there, and I go, I'm going to do this. Now, here's the, here's the other cool part to the story, is that where my comedy office was, which was in Richboro at the time, uh, there was an office space next to it. Now, wait to hear how, how the universe set me up for this. The space was open, and the guy that owned the building said to me, Andy, this space here, are you sure you can't use it? Let me tell you what. If you just, you know, give me like a hundred bucks a month for it, okay? And then you can rent it out to somebody else. And when he said that to me, I had a friend of mine, this was like weeks prior, who was looking for office space. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll make some money on it then. Okay, great. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I put an ad in the newspaper, you know, because my buddy couldn't do it then. I get back to my office the same day I hypnotized this lady. There's a message on my answer machine Yes, I know that office space, so exactly where it is, I'll take it. I called the guy up and go, sorry, it's taken. I decided to make it into a hypnotherapy office. Wait to hear this, there's more. So I start seeing family and friends, right? And then I get a call from this guy that just wants to stop smoking. I help this one guy stop smoking. I didn't know this. He was a guy, and he's like 29 years old, real estate guy. He became a non-smoker. Now, I didn't know this, but his father is a medical doctor in Richboro. I didn't know that. Well, about a month later, his father, the medical doctor, calls me on the phone, and he says, Hey, um, Dr. Schmitzer, you helped my son stop smoking. Can I meet you? I said, Sure, yeah. So we had lunch. So after the lunch, he goes, That's it. I'm sending you all my patients. I swear to God, man, it was like a parade, Steve. He said, all his patients came in for non-smoking, weight control, fears and phobias. It was just unbelievable. Like I was getting so much business from that one thing. And then wait to hear this. You know who Don Pollock is, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, he used to be on Action News all the time. He did the pieces on Action News. Well, Don Pollock, you know, he used to do these, these kind of clever little bits on Action News. Well, because there was a guy, because I'm in the comedy business, he did this bit with this guy. I forget what he did. He did this weird thing with his hands. And he, because I'm in the comedy business, he carbon copied me on it. And Don Pollock's, Don Pollock's email address was in it. So now, at the time, here's the other thing. Once I became a hypnotherapist, which, by the way, I love. It, Steve, have you ever have you ever been hypnotized? No, I want to ask you when you after the story. I want to ask you something about the hypnotizing. Okay, I'll explain it to you in detail. It's it's really cool. It's it's really a cool thing. So. Uh, I had Don Pollock's email address, and at the time, I was a hypnotherapist, right? I didn't want to do a stage show, but what happened was, I got a call, this was the year before, from a lady at Comedy Cabaret, uh, yeah, do you know a stage hypnotist? Because uh, we, we want a stage hypnotist, and I said, you know, shit, I can learn how to do that. How much are you going to pay? 700 bucks. I, I can learn how to do that. I, I'll get somebody for you. <laughs> somebody for you so i went and studied how to do it so then i did it and i really enjoyed it it was fun it was like a combination of stand-up comedy and my hypnosis work which was just a joy to do you know you take volunteers in the audience you give them suggestions they do the show 
Okay, so now the Don Pollock thing. So I see Don Pollock's email address. So I email Don Pollock. I go, I have a great story for you. How about a story about a guy who by day helps people overcome fears and phobias and stop smoking and sleep better and feel better, and by night uses the same power to entertain hundreds of people? <laughs> so he never emailed me back. Next thing I know, I'm doing my stage hypnosis show in Northeast Philly. He shows up with cameras <laughs> to videotape the show. He comes to my office then uh, a couple days later. He wants to experience hypnosis. I do a hypnosis session with him, and in the session, which I think this was pretty cool of me, in the session, I hypnotize him to, to say, at the end of the segment, you're not going to be able to say your last name. When you close out the segment, you will not be able to say your last name. It will be gone from your memory bank. Now, believe me, to get to that point, it took at least, I mean, I had to work with him for a half an hour until I knew he was going to be there. So when the session's over, he closes out thing. This is Don. <coughs> he couldn't say his last name. Well, I'm telling you, when that thing aired on TV, my phone rang off the hook for two weeks. I mean, I was doing so many sessions with people, I literally was losing my voice. I was losing my voice. And for two weeks straight, I was, it was the busiest I ever was. I was doing like five clients a day. You can't talk that much. But, uh, so in, in a nutshell, let me explain hypnosis to you. Any, anybody listening, you know, people have a misunderstanding about what hypnosis is. The word hypnosis is just a name for a mental state, okay? It's simply a focused mental state such as daydreaming. When you're daydreaming, you're in a focused mental state. Now, let me ask you this. Did you ever, this happens with kids, and sometimes this happens with me. Like, if I'm watching, like, a sporting event on TV and I'm really into it, do you ever watch something, you're so focused on it, like somebody calls your name and you don't hear them for a while? Oh, yeah, it happens to everybody. <laughs> okay. Well, see that focused mental state when you're in that focused mental state? That is also known as hypnosis. It's just a simple focused mental state. Now, when you're in that focused mental state, you are more suggestible. So definition of hypnosis. Here's hypnosis. Hypnosis is nothing more or nothing less than a vehicle to get to your subconscious mind. So why would you want to get to your subconscious mind? Because that's like our computer program that really kind of programs how we react, how we do things. So if you want to change something and you're having a hard time doing it on your own, now some people, I've talked to people that want to stop smoking, they just say, you know what, I stopped. God bless them. Some people have a hard time. They come and pay me money to help them stop smoking. I've helped people with fears and phobias, and I'm not exaggerating. I've had people come to me that were afraid of driving. Somebody else had to drive them to me, and I would help them, and then after I helped them, they could drive. So how is all that done? Well, it takes time, but when you're once in a set, you're in a session with somebody, see, here's the thing. The hypnosis session itself is very relaxing. Like when you're in a hypnotherapy office, the first thing they do is they help you relax. We're going to take some deep breaths, and you're just going to let go. As you listen to the sound of my voice, you're going to find yourself becoming more calm and more relaxed. The more relaxed you become, the better you're going to feel. And I keep talking like that and have them do deep breaths. 
and have engaged their imagination. And what happens? They start becoming very, very relaxed. And when they become very relaxed, they're there to pay me to help them overcome something. So they are willing to listen and take the suggestions I give them. But I also do things where I incorporate this thing called neuro-linguistic programming, which is just a way of using your brain to change your brain map on something. And I'll, I'll give you a, a simple thing to explain what that means. Let's say you have a fear of... Uh, do you have any fears? I'm not a big fan. I mean, it's funny. I'm not a big fan of heights. I used to have a fear of flying, but then I would fly once okay. back, once a month to come well, back to my girlfriend. Having a fear of heights, I mean, that's... And that's relatively normal. Most people have what I would say a healthy fear of flights. But as long as it doesn't stop you from doing anything that you would normally want to do, then it's not a nuisance. Okay. But uh, but if you had a fear of, let, I'm going to say spiders. Let's just say spiders. You have fear of spiders, which I've helped people with that. All right? So here's, here's neuro-linguistic programming. Very simple technique. And you can use this technique for anything. All right, so let's say I have a fear of spiders. Let's say I can close your eyes, and I want you to picture the spider you're afraid of and have them describe it to me. Now, where is it? How far away is it from you? So let's say they say, you know, it's two feet away from me. I said, okay, when I count to three, I want you to imagine that that spider, you're going to push that spider away so it's going to go further away from you, and you're going to show yourself that you can exhibit power over the spider by pushing the image away. And as you push that image away, it's going to show you that you have more control over the spider than you think. So just imagine yourself making the spider go further and further away from you. It's going further and further and further away. The further away it goes, the less it bothers you. And further, So that's just one simple, tiny little technique out of hundreds of different things I can do with somebody's mind while they're in a the state of hypnosis or even consciously like you and I just did that can help them overcome whatever it is that's bothering them. Okay, I got a question for and, you though. I got a question for yeah. you. Why is it? And it's it's just it's when you think about it, you know, from growing up watching hypnotists on TV, you know, we watch Mike Douglas show, the Merv Griffin show, and all that. Yeah. What is it that you know? And this sounds so basic, but I remember that from a kid when you know people would act like a chicken. I mean, what? Yeah, of course. What of course, causes of course. that? What yeah, causes that? Here, here it is. Here it is. This is really simple. This is really simple. Okay. Now. When a person agrees to be put in hypnosis, okay, first of all, when I'm doing my stage show, I'm at a comedy club, okay? I'm asking people to come up and volunteer. Like, I don't, I don't say to the audience, you have to come up. Who wants to come up? So look, so they're going to take suggestions. Now, here's what happens is that they are willing to accept the suggestion. Now, here's the thing that you have to remember in hypnosis. I could never give someone a suggestion to do something that is against their morals or their values, or they really, really don't want to do, okay? Like, for example, let's say you came, and I hypnotized you. I go, Steve, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the bank. You're going to take out all your money. You're going to give it to me, and you're going to forget that you even did this. <laughs> now, that's not going to work, okay? Now, to answer your question, why would they... To cluck like a chicken, or why would they do anything? Why would they do anything? Why would they dance like they're on drugs, or why would they uh, crawl on the floor like a dog, or bark like a dog, or whatever? They'll do it because they're in the suggestive mood, and they're just in creative. It's like, remember when you were a kid, and you went out and played? I know when I was a kid, I come back home, 
And mom goes, oh, what were you doing? I go, I was playing. What would you do? I go, I don't know, I was playing. You, you were just so into the moment. That's what happens. You're just so into the moment, and you're willing to accept the suggestions. If you ever gave someone a suggestion, okay, take all your clothes off right now and start masturbating in front of everybody. Well, the average person is not going to do that. <laughs> now, if you had some kind of a freak weirdo in the mix that would want to do that, well, he might do it, you know. But the average person wouldn't want to do that. So they wouldn't accept the suggestion. So they know that dancing like a, a chicken is going to be entertaining. They're going to have fun. Did you ever pretend you were a chicken, Steve? Probably you never have. You should try it. It's probably fun. It's probably, it could be releasing. It could be like a whole new thing for you. Now, you know, that's funny. Now, what, what's with the snapping of the fingers, though? What is, is that something that really it, breaks it? It could it? be snapping of the fingers. It could be clapping of the hands. That could be anything. It could be anything you tell the client or anything you tell the person sitting on stage accepting the suggestions. Usually they say, if I look at you and I point at you and I say sleep, instantly you'll go to sleep. Or if I snap my fingers, you'll instantly go to sleep. And that snapping of the fingers is just a cue. It's simply a cue. The whole thing is set up on cues. Now, to help somebody overcome something, you just want you keep repeating whatever it is they want to do, and you keep showing them, like you project in the future. Okay, look at next week. You're a non-smoker. Look how easy you're being a non-smoker. And once the person can see that in their own mind and experience that, whether it's smoking, whether it's controlling their weight, whether it's not being afraid of something, whether it's feeling more confident, or whatever it is they want to do with themselves, you know, the hypnotherapy is going to help. It's simply going to help because that's the way our minds are designed that when you're in a meditative state, you're simply more suggestible. Now, so anybody that ever watched a movie and cried, they're basically in a state of hypnosis, although we don't call it that generally. Like people don't go, oh, you're in hypnosis, you're watching a movie and you're crying. No, but it's the same exact thing. It's the same exact thing. Now, have, have, uh, one have, of the great, uh, listen, let me say one other thing that's really very, very helpful for people <clears throat> when they come to me for various situations is a regression. And I'll give you, this is a pretty interesting story, and I don't know if we have time for me to tell her, it's only going to take a few minutes. But when I first started, and this is very typical, what I'm going to tell you is very, very typical of how I help people with hypnotherapy. And I find this very fascinating and very interesting on all levels, because I think it's, it's interesting that it works, and, it's, and uh, I feel good that the person comes in, and, and they're going to feel better about the scenario. I've had people over the years that have problems driving. Well, I got a call from a client, and she says, uh, look, here's my situation. I'm, I'm a nervous wreck when I drive. But the weird thing is, if I know where I'm going, okay, if I don't know where I'm going, I, I am just a nervous wreck. And, and now it's just getting worse, because now I'm thinking, oh, my God, next week I have to drive my daughter to this cheerleading competition, and it's an upper derby, and I don't know how to get there. I and I have to get another adult. And, and, and really, she starts working herself up, just telling me the story. I said, yeah, I can help you. Come on in. So here's what happened. First thing in hypnotherapy, you get them relaxed. After they're relaxed, you build some confidence. And then we all have things that happened to us that were made us feel good, made our confidence. I anchor those things in them. And then I start talking about whatever the scenario is. So now the question is, why is this woman like this? What is the reason? I ask her why. I don't know. Okay. It doesn't matter. In a hypnotherapy session, it's going to come up because that's how it works. 
So I do a regression, and the regression is you just go back into the mind. I'm giving you a really short version of how this works. It takes a lot of time to do it. But I t I, we go back into our memory bank to where this all started, this feeling of being like this. And I take her back, and here all of a sudden she starts talking. She's 11 years old. I go, what happened? What's happening? I'm 11 years old. I'm in the car with my parents. Well, tell me what's going on. Wait, where are you? We're, we're going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on vacation, and I'm in the car, and my girlfriend's with me. She's coming on vacation with me. We're driving. It's late at night, and we're driving down there. My parents get lost, and when they got lost, they got into a big fight, and they're screaming and cursing at each other and yelling, and I'm scared, and I'm humiliated because my little friend is sitting next to me. Okay, now that's called the initializing event, all right? Okay. So this, this woman had this thing, and she's a grown woman, she, and this is an 11-year-old thing. So here's what happens. The hypnotherapist, if they're competent, can now take that event and we do therapy on the event. So by the time I'm finished with her, I work her through this event inside and out. So by the time it's over, that event means nothing to her anymore. Nothing. Nothing. It's like the almost, the, almost as if the event didn't happen. So what does that do? It takes the emotional charge out of that event. Okay? So now, the woman's fine. I did one session, boom. She can drive anywhere. Okay, so it took like 90 minutes, something like that. I don't know, maybe a little longer. But now, isn't that pretty cool? Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it's just that's, that's funny because they, I've seen shows and stuff like that. But I have a question. When you're doing the hypnosis or even on a stage, and this sounds like a stupid question, but is there ever a chance that the person won't snap out of it? Or is that just a, <laughs> is that just a myth? <laughs> no, Steve, have you ever heard of a permanent... I don't know. I'm just I'm asking. You never know. <laughs> I think at this point in the year 2018, someone would have had a permanent case of hypnosis. People have that fear when they get hypnotized. Uh, well, no. Here's the, here's the thing with me personally. is that I, would have ne I never would have went to a hypnotist. The only reason I went is because I took that class of self-hypnosis first. Once I found out what it was like, I go, okay, because I didn't trust going to a hypnotist because I saw the chicken clock. I go, fuck, I don't want somebody telling me I'm a chicken. So I was afraid to go myself. But once I understood how it worked, I go, oh, shit. Okay, I can do this. You know, it's not like that. So, you know, there's never been a case of permanent hypnosis. And hypnosis, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard of forensic hypnosis, which one of the courses I studied for my doctorate, it's where... Do you know what forensic hypnosis is? Just tell me real quick. It's really cool. It's like, let's say you saw a crime, and, uh, and the police interviewed you, and, and it's really important, and you go, oh, I don't know, I don't remember. Sometimes they'll hire somebody like me to sit down and work with you, where I go back into your memory bank, and then we can get more details out in the state of hypnosis than what you can remember consciously. It's, I mean, it's been used in police work for a long time. Right. It's called forensic hypnosis. So now, are you doing? Are you doing still doing the the live comedy hypnosis hypnosis shows? Is that a lot of gigs coming up, or how is the market? No, no. On that right now, no. I had to, here's what I had to do. I had to take a break because of the way my schedule has been. With you know, I have hypnosis clients. <clears throat> I have an office right in my house where people come to me, and I I see. I even make house calls. I've actually made house calls for people that for every reason couldn't come. Um, so, you know, so I have a hypnosis practice, and I also have a lot of responsibilities running the comedy cabarets. 
I have people helping me, but I still have a lot of responsibility in those areas. And, you know, I want to have a life. You know, so, uh, so the stage show, which does require a lot of work, and, uh, you know, I have a couple little medical things. Like I have a, uh, right now I pulled a groin playing basketball. I mean, I'm 65, and I was playing basketball with my sons, which isn't right. They're in their 30s. Right. <laughs> Your fast twitch muscle fibers aren't working at 65. It's like, you know, really a stupid thing to do. So when I get better, I'm going to, you know, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my body to heal, and I'm going to be doing some. Hopefully this summer, I hope to be doing some. Now, I was last so long. What is that, on 30 years now? What, how many years is that? Uh, actually, it was 31. Just uh, April 7th was 31 years. And the reason that has lasted, it, it's several reasons. It's one, it's where it's located. Okay, the location is very good as far as just on the street that it's on the main street. It's in a good location. There's free parking. And on top of that, Coco's Restaurant is a great restaurant. A restaurant to stay in business for 31 years, they got to be doing something right. Okay, now, you know, I mean, it's Mexican-American food. Uh, I, I love their quesadilla there. I mean, it's, it's just the absolute best. But they do a great job running that restaurant, which makes it a nice night out because a lot of people want to have dinner first and then go to the comedy show. So, like, I get some of my customers from them, and they get some of my customers for their for themselves. So that's, that's another reason. And the other reason is the area is it's, it's an upper-middle-class area for the most part. They're intelligent people. I don't, the shows I put on there, you know, I don't put, like, Somebody constantly saying, fuck, 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 up my ass, dick, 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 dick. You know, you know it's, I don't put on crude shows there because the audience generally doesn't like it. Maybe once a year I do an X-rated show. Rich Walsh is going to be there this Friday. So once a year I do like an X-rated show, and it says X-rated because I've had people actually complain to me over the years there that the comedians were too dirty. So, you know, I want to listen to the audience. They're suburban people. It's not like a city club. It's not inner city. They don't have the same taste. The demographic is not like the city, which skews more 20s and 30s. We're more, more like mid-30s to mid-50s. So our demographic is actually different than the cities. You know, we're hard, hardworking people. They work all week. They don't want to go into the city, but they want to be entertained in a nice way and not be hit over the head with a bunch of crude stuff. So that's why it's lasted. And the other thing, you know, it's a nice setup in there. I mean, it's a professional setup. The lighting is good. The staging is good. Um, you know, we do a nice job, and the talent's good. So it's a lot of factors. It's not just one factor. It's a lot of them. And if you have all those factors going together, you can have a, success, a successful comedy venue, but you need all those factors in one spot. And if without Poco's, if, it, if Poco's wasn't there, and they were because I've been around, you know, I've done it other places. I've, I've, my places in Wilmington, Delaware, I was, if the restaurant would have stayed open, I'd still be there. If Corolla's was still open, I'd still be there. Right. It's sad. You know, it's, so, it's, it's, I live, I live. So the thing is, the thing that, in retrospect, you, know, you can't go back in life, but if I could go back 30 years, I'd say, okay, I've got to own everything to make sure everything is done right. And if that was the case, I would, you know, I would have probably four or five solid clubs, including Center City. You know, everything would be different. But, you know, you can't look at life like that. You have to look at, okay, well, you know, you can't look at, oh, I could have done that and I should have done that because that will drive you out of your mind. So you just have to go, okay, I've got to make the best I can with what I have. And, you know, that's what I do. I make the best I can. And fortunately for me, I love it. I love being in a room of people laughing. I love it. I love watching comedians work. I just totally love to laugh. And, you know, it's just one of the things that Andy Scarpati really loves. I love to laugh. Simple as that. 
Well, that's awesome, Andy. I, I want to thank you for taking the time. This is great. It's a blast from the past for me. Now, your website is yeah. drscarpati.com. Yep, drscarpati.com for the hypnotherapy and comedycabaret.com for the comedy. Okay, so people, go check them out and go to a comedy cabaret show, support live comedy. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 680 episodes. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want to get on. You know, I've been getting a lot of musicians lately, so I'm venturing into the into the more of the comedy and more Philadelphia guests because I'm recording out of Philly now. Also, go to my Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. You can go to my Instagram. It's Cooper Talk One. And also, don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember five, was it five or six years ago when I had a bad health problem? I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. Cooking for one. No, no big, long list of ingredients. No pictures to intimidate you. It's perfect for you guys. So you can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at Amazon... I don't make as much money. So if you go to StopTheSalt.com, <laughs> I make the money. I'll send it out. So people, check out Andy Scarpati. Go to us, and it's S-C-A-R-P-A-T-I, which I just found out today after 30-odd years. Go to his website. <laughs> go to TheComedyCabaret.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>